This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 27 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The last pilgrimage festival of the Jewish year, the Festival of Sukkot, begins tonight. Yes, I said the last festival of the Jewish year, not the first. Remember that what we call Rosh Hashanah, New Year's, is actually the first day of the seventh month, not the first. That makes Passover, Pesach, the first festival of the Jewish year. Of course it's confusing. This is Judaism after all. Seriously, though, of all the antiquated customs in Judaism, the ones related to Sukkot probably are the most embarrassing for modern Jews. And so, the topic for this week is Sukkot. It's more relevant today than ever before. Why is Sukkot looked down upon by so many people nowadays? Imagine, goes their reasoning, having to participate in such ludicrous rituals as waving palm branches decorated with willows and myrtle and connected, no less, to the world's most expensive lemon, the citron, the etrog in Hebrew. Here's how the Torah describes Sukkot in Leviticus chapter 23. Quote, And on the first day of Sukkot, you are to take the fruit of the Hadar tree, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, as well as willows of the brook, and you shall dwell in huts in Sukkot for seven days. Unquote. I know that Sukkot is usually translated as booth, but hut is the better translation. To the naysayers, not only does the way this law is observed smack of some pagan tree-hugging, but the Torah probably never meant for its words to be taken in this way. They point to Nehemiah 8.15, in which the people are told, quote, Go out to the mountain and bring back leafy olive branches, and leafy evergreen branches, and leafy myrtle branches, and leafy palm branches, and leafy branches of thick trees to make huts as it is written in the Torah, unquote. Obviously, the argument goes, the so-called four species, the Torah list, the myrtle, the willow, palm branch, and the citron, were meant as the building material for the huts. Although what kind of living quarters you can make out of a citron, I have no idea. That, of course, brings up the whole huts thing, especially sitting outside on a cold night in what is essentially early autumn, eating elegant dinners in shabbily constructed shelters with insufficient space and uncomfortable chairs, and with the needles from ferns or pine branches dropping into the soup. More to the point, they say, the whole premise of the festival is, quote, a fraud, unquote. After all, the Israelites coming out of Egypt never dwelt in huts. They dwelt in tents. Since the Israelites stayed in at least one place for many years during their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, they probably did live in huts, but let's go on. In any case, say the naysayers, the so-called evidence is as clear as the night sky above the Sukkah that this festival came very late, its origins are to be found in pagan agricultural ritual, and its exodus connection was forced. Once again, the book of Nehemiah is cited. Here's more of what Nehemiah chapter 8 has to say. Quote, And they found written in the Torah, which the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, that the people of Israel should live in huts during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim and publish in all of their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring back leafy olive branches and leafy evergreen branches and leafy myrtle branches and leafy palm branches and leafy branches of thick trees to make huts, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made themselves huts and dwelt in the huts. For since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, unquote. Say the naysayers, if the laws of Sukkot went unobserved since the days of Joshua, 
meaning for at least 600 years or more by Nehemiah's time, then they probably didn't exist at all until Nehemiah and Ezra, his colleague, who was the religious leader of Israel at that time, came up with the idea. Aside from the Torah, whose authorship is suspect as far as these people making such arguments are concerned, there's almost nothing in the rest of the Bible to confirm the existence of Sukkot, with a possible exception in the book of Judges. But that reference suggests that Sukkot was nothing more than a local agricultural feast, probably related to the grape harvest, in which the highlight was young women dancing. And so, Sukkot is easily dismissed by so many. How can we cling to such absurdities, their argument goes, and still call ourselves modern? That's the wrong question, though. The far more appropriate question is that because we are modern, how can we not cling to them? Forget whether the Torah wants us to shake our palm branches, our lulavim, or for us to build our Sukkot with them. It's just this kind of minutia that distorts the Torah's purpose. In this case, quite literally, we can't see the forest for the trees if we get bogged down in this way. Let's examine what the Torah in Leviticus 23 says about Sukkot. Quote, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this, the seventh month, there shall be celebrated the festival of Hatz, Chag HaSukkot. After you have harvested your land's produce, you shall celebrate the Lord's festival for seven days. And on the first day, you are to take the fruit of the Hadar tree, a citron, or etrog, branches of palm trees, lulavim, or lulav in the singular, and boughs of leafy trees, hadasim, as well as willows of the brook, aravot, and you shall dwell in huts in Sukkot for seven days, unquote. Let's unpack this mitzvah. The harvest is in, another name for Sukkot, is the festival, the ingathering, and hopefully it was a good one. Now, the Israelites are to take four species of growing things, a fruit, the etrog, a vegetable, the palm, and two types of branches, and they're to dwell in temporary shelters, huts, for seven days. According to the enabling legislation designed by our sages of blessed memory, three of the four species are combined into a single package. To the lulav are bound three hadasim and two aravot, with slivers of palm used to create their holders and binding. Each morning, the lulav is taken in the right hand and the etrog in the left. The two hands come together, so all four are symbolically joined. It's all about the environment. It's all about our relationship to the land and our responsibilities to it. One fruit, one vegetable, and two different kinds of branches are combined. A blessing is made, and the palm is waved in six directions, east, west, north, south, towards the sky, towards the earth. It's not that difficult to see that this is all about the environment. It's all about the natural world we pay so little attention to as we go through each day. Taking the four species and waving them in all directions makes us pause and think about that natural world and hopefully our responsibilities towards it. Then there's the sukkah itself. It's supposed to be made out of wood or some other naturally growing substance and have at least three sides. Boards are placed on top, and on top of the boards goes something called schach, a covering that grew in the ground. It could be bamboo poles or pine leaves or ferns or even leaves of palm trees or the branches of other trees. Whatever is used, however, must have grown in the ground, must have been cut down for use as the covering for the sukkah and for no other purpose, and must still be in its natural state. 
The top is not so heavily covered, though, so that the stars above are still somewhat visible. Even inside the sukkah, we need to see the world outside. Nowadays, thanks to liberal rulings by the rabbis over time, mainly because lumber can be so expensive and storing the lumber from year to year is not possible for many people, most walls of the sukkah are made of canvas, which is a product made from things that grow, hemp, flax, or cotton most often. Fiberglass, also known as mineral wool, is also a material used by some. We sit in the sukkah for all our meals. If the sukkah is covered in pine leaves or ferns, some of the needles inevitably end up in the soup, as noted earlier. And we generally hang out in the sukkah as often during the day as we can. In some of the ritually rigid communities around the world, some people even sleep in the sukkah. Sukkot doesn't belong to the ancient world. Rather, Sukkot may be the most important observance on the Jewish calendar from an environmental standpoint, precisely because of its rituals as these have come down to us. We live in an age when we get emails streaming into devices nestled in our coat pocket and where we can sit on a beach and still answer memos, write reports, and participate in business conferences. There's no escape from the workday world, and technology, rather than simplifying our lives, only complicates them further. We're so far removed from the real world that it's only half in jest that someone once suggested to me changing the Hamotzi blessing, who brings forth the bread from the earth, to who brings forth the bread from the oven. That's not where bread comes from, however. It's only how it ends up, including if it's home-baked. Bread begins by someone planting seeds that are carefully cultivated until they grow into stalks of wheat. Those stalks are then winnowed to remove the score or more of grains found in each stalk. Unless whole grain flour is wanted, the grain is then milled, meaning that it's crushed, cleaned, and sieved, making it into a white flour, which then may be enriched or modified in some way. Bread flour, self-rising flour, and so on. That flour becomes the main ingredient in a loaf of bread. To it are added such components as water, eggs, oil, salt, and sugar, and yeast, all of which required many steps of their own to get to the point that we could make use of them. Some loaves contain potato water or potato flour as well. Different flours produce different loaves, and the milling process also differs somewhat from one flour to another. There are people engaged along every step of the way, including some workers who may earn very little for very hard labor, especially in parts of the world where each wheat stalk must be cut down by hand, probably the most labor-intensive farming task of all. Nature also has a role to play. Weather conditions, especially sun and rain, must be sufficient to allow the wheat to grow. Timing is important, too. Harvesting wheat is a really difficult process that requires pretty good preparation and decent timing. If dry wheat is left out in the field too long, winds and storms can destroy the crop. The quality of the wheat may decrease if the wheat gets rained on. All of this and more goes into a loaf of bread, but all we see is that loaf. We don't see everything that went into creating that loaf. Now, more than at any time in world history, when global warming threatens our planet's future, when over 10% of the world's population is said to suffer from chronic undernourishment, as the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization puts it, we need to see the big picture. We need to be aware of the forces of nature that are needed to grow the foods we eat, and we need to be concerned about the labor involved as well, because we need to be concerned about the welfare of all people, and especially the low-paid so-called stoop laborer. There's a world out there that goes underappreciated and undervalued. Sukkot forces us to recognize that world and how much we still need it. This festival forces us to consider nature as part of our very being. Indeed, it's part of the essence of our being. Sukkot, above all else, is about the natural order of the world and the creator whose word caused it all to come into being.
There's nothing antiquated or embarrassing about Sukkot. In fact, as I see it, there's much that's quite modern and appealing about it. Everything about Sukkot is connected to the land, is connected to the environment, is connected to nature. Not everyone, of course, want to build a sukkah, and people who live in apartment complexes probably can't do so. In normal years, at least, most synagogues have their own Sukkot, however, and usually offer at least one communal meal during the festival, as well as collations after services, kiddushes, again in a normal year. Lulav and etrog sets, as the four species are often called by vendors, are available around Sukkot at Judaica shops, and yes, even on Amazon. You can even buy a sukkah on Amazon. They can be expensive, but it's well worth the cost if one can afford it because of what the four species represent. Local synagogues, again in normal years, usually have extra sets for worshippers to use if they're unable or unwilling to purchase their own sets. As to how to assemble and wave a lulav, some excellent guides, including videos, are just a Google search away. The seven days of Sukkot are immediately followed by a festival known as Shmini Aseret, the eighth day of assembly. Although most people simply see it as the eighth day of Sukkot, it really is a separate festival, though. We no longer wave the lulav, and there's no requirement to hang out in the Sukkah. God willing, we'll discuss it and the celebration known as Simchat Torah in our next podcast. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach. Stay healthy, stay safe, and shake that lulav.